Well, shall we begin with prayer this evening? Our Father, this is the night to remember, for it is the night in which our Lord celebrated his last supper with his disciples. This Monday, Thursday, this day in which our King, the greater than David, would do what no David could ever do, would lay down his life for his sheep. We cannot <clears throat> plumb the depths of the agony he anticipated and the grief that caused him to cry out, if it be thy will. But, Lord, from the depths of our hearts, we are sincerely grateful that he endured the shame and the grief and the agony that we deserved. Let us not only be conformed to the measure of his passion, his suffering. But let us anticipate, even as he prophesied, the glory of his resurrection exaltation. Will you renew us and your church in this season as the world passes by and pays no heed to the cross of Jesus, save what it can scandalize, save what it can ridicule once again, save what it can mock, of the divine Son of God. Do bless us in this weekend as we receive both the testimony of our redemption and the testimony of our resurrection glorification. We thank you for him who brought it to us and who is seated now at your right hand. In the name of Jesus, we thank you. Amen. We're looking at 2 Samuel 24. This chapter that concludes the Samuel corpus is in many ways the most baffling chapter of the corpus in Toto. There are mysteries here which elude us, at least ostensibly. Baffling mysteries. From a narrator 
a divinely inspired narrator who has not heretofore tantalized us with unresolved mysteries. The fact that our inspired narrator leaves us with a narrative so thoroughly uncharacteristic, so thoroughly uncharacteristic of his previous story of David, has led many liberal commentators to argue that this chapter is an appendix to an appendix. That it doesn't fit with the rest of chapters 21 to 23, and hence should be relegated to a literary no-man's land. These liberals are cocksure that the author of the Samuel books is not the author of 2 Samuel 24. And so they set it aside as an anomaly, a narrative anomaly which does not belong in the storyline of David's career. They argue, for example, that the god of this chapter is a puppet master, capriciously pulling strings on the marionettes he controls according to his meretricious whims. They argue that the literary style of this chapter is foreign to the literary style of the balance of the David narrative. And so they relegate these 25 verses to the purgatory of irrelevance and unenlightened nonsense. Indeed, they label it nonsense. One wonders why liberals never learn, never seem to learn from their mistakes, though they are very quick to point out the beam in the eye of conservatives. Enough vaunted scientific liberal explanations of the Bible have been embarrassingly shown to be rubbish, rot, and the like by archaeology, history, and a close reading of the Hebrew and Greek text. Such explanations have been embarrassingly common over the last 125 years or so that one would think that they would pack it in and retire from the field as well as from the academy. But of course, liberals have never been corrected by how the real world works because the imaginary world they impose upon the Bible is a reconstruction of the reflection that greets them in the mirror every morning. Liberals are afflicted with a disease, a cancer, in fact, a disease that causes them to impose their worldview on the Bible while gorging themselves daily on the narcotic called denial. 
I deny that the Bible is the inspired word of God. I deny that the Bible is historically accurate. I deny that the Bible teaches that Jesus is the ontological son of God. I deny, for I am addicted to denial. And I refuse to give up my mind-expanding, my mind-fantasizing drug. Second Samuel 24 does not fit my worldview. My self-created, self-reflective fantasy worldview. So I reject Second Samuel 24 and I set it aside from the narrative flow of First and Second Samuel. We dare not follow in their train. We may be stymied by Second Samuel 24, but we dare not live in denial, denial that it is part of the inspired word of God. Our author has placed it here as part of the fulfillment of his narrative and literary purpose. Our author has placed it here as part of the fulfillment of his theological purpose. Our author concludes his Samuel corpus with 2 Samuel 24 because he has a purpose. He has a purpose in winding up his life of David with this chapter. Just what that purpose is, is the challenge before us this evening. Our narrator begins in verse 1 by telling us God is angry with Israel. But precisely why God is angry with Israel, our narrator does not tell us. Does he expect us to know why God is angry? Is it self-evident to him and therefore should be self-evident to his readers? What is the sin of Israel which makes them liable to God's displeasure? Our narrator makes it clear that numbering the people of Israel and Judah is a threat to the livelihood of the nation. Verse 13. But precisely why numbering the nation is a threat and incurs the divine displeasure and judgment, our narrator does not tell us. Complicating God's reaction to the numbering of the people here under the rule of David is the fact that God himself commanded Moses to number the people not once but twice in the book of Numbers. 
Numbers chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Numbers 26, verses 1 and 2. In fact, those two numberings in the book of Numbers are the structural arrangements and delimiters of the theological flow of that book. The old generation, which is numbered and will die in the wilderness, Numbers chapter 1, the new generation, which will go into the land, Numbers 26. The book of Numbers is divided on the basis of God's ordained censuses between the old and the new. And so, we base our title for the fourth book of Moses precisely on this paradigm numbering the people of Israel. So why is God displeased here in 2 Samuel 24 when he himself commanded Moses to do apparently the very same thing when Israel was wandering in the wilderness and commanded Moses to do it twice. We may be puzzled by the apparent inconsistency between numbers and our text, but Joab is not, or is he? Verse 3, Joab asks why. A question which we have been asking is repeated by Joab, of all people. He even invokes the name of God in posing his query. Joab, of all people, using the name of the Lord God. But what does Joab know that we do not know? Does our narrator think it is obvious, once again, even obvious to one of the featured nefarious characters in his narrative? Joab asks why, and we ask, why does Joab ask why? He is certainly not pleased with David's wish to number the people, and he directly pleads with David in God's name to give it up. But why? And you will notice it is not only Joab. The army commander distressed by David's plan. Verse 4 indicates that the other commanders of the army, perhaps the three we noted in chapter 23, verses 8 to 12 last week, the other commanders of the army also question the wisdom of David's directive. So Joab is not just a lone dissenting voice. He is joined by other military personnel who share his view of the king's command. 
David must prevail. He must prevail over both Joab and the other military commanders. David is commander-in-chief. He does have the authority to order compliance. But why? Why does he disregard the counsel of his chief military commanders and order the census? Why? Again, our narrator does not tell us. We are being kept in the dark when it comes to motive. What moves God to anger? What moves David to number the people? What moves Joab to resist David? What moves the army commanders to demur? What is motivating the characters in our drama? Our narrator does not tell us. Our narrator is not making narrative analysis easy for us here. Now, David realizes he has sinned, verse 10. How does he know he has sinned? What has pricked his conscience? No act of divine displeasure has yet occurred. So why is David troubled when Joab and his returning military entourage have carried out his directive order, verses 8 and 9? David has the figures in hand, the number of the people of Israel and Judah, which he requested, which he ordered, which he commanded. The census figures are before him, yet he declares, I have sinned. Why? Why? And the final enigma... The final enigma, why does God relent? In fact, why does God relent before the appointed time? Verse 15. What induces God to suspend the judgment communicated by his ordained prophet? Verse 13. And chosen by his appointed king? Verse 14. Why does God stay the hand of the angel of the Lord? Verse 16. As we are puzzled by the motivation for God's anger in verse 1, we are reciprocally puzzled by the motivation for God's mercy in verse 16. We step back. We step back from our initial reading of 2 Samuel 24 with a pile of whys. 
upon our minds. And it is no good denying that they are real whys and wherefores. And the most important why for us is why our author-narrator has placed this story at the end, at the end of his twofold book. Now, before I attempt to answer some of these whys, I'm not merely tantalizing you. I'm setting you up. Before I attempt to answer some of these whys, let's look at the text for literary patterns and narrative structure. We have maintained throughout our study of the life of David that our narrator is a literary genius. He does not disappoint us as he writes the final chapter to his tale. We begin with the macro structure of the conclusion of 2 Samuel, the structure of chapters 21 to 24. I've repeated that macro structure at the top of your handout once again so you can have it in front of you. We have pointed out previously the symmetry of the respective narrative and narrative poetic elements of these four chapters. The motif of divine judgment begins in chapter 21 and ends in chapter 24. The instrument of God's anger is famine in chapter 21. It is plague or pestilence here in chapter 24. Symmetry of divine displeasure. Symmetry of divine displeasure. 21 and 24. We also note the symmetry of divine mercy. The Lord sets aside his displeasure and relents by being moved by entreaty for the land. That phrase, moved by entreaty for the land, concludes both Judgment narratives in chapter 21 and chapter 24. Notice verse 14 of chapter 21 and verse 25 of chapter 24. Our narrator has intentionally framed, he has intentionally framed the end of the first climactic story of God's anger with his mercy even as he has framed the second climactic story of God's anger with his mercy. He's done precisely the same thing in a balanced, symmetrical fashion at the beginning and at the end of this section of his narrative. If you cut out chapter 24, you truncate and you uh, surgically remove his symmetry. You see, if you take the liberal approach, you cannot justify how it is that he's balanced his narrative. You got him of his own genius, let alone got the inspired word of God. 
in his wrath, God remembers mercy. And that concept frames 2 Samuel 21, 1 to 14, and 2 Samuel 25, 1 to 25. Symmetry of narratives balanced by symmetry of divine attributes. Judgment and grace. Perfect, balanced symmetry. Chapter 24 belongs here, if for no other reason, than its structural symmetry. It must remain. All right, so that we may label 21-1 anger and 24-1 anger. And we may label 21-14 mercy slash grace and 24-25 mercy slash grace. Strict parallel symmetry. Our author draws our attention to the narratives of God's wrath and mercy by symmetry of inception and conclusion, or beginning and end. He is providing us with a clue. Our narrator is providing us with a clue to his authorial intent, a clue to why he has recorded these stories at the end of his second volume. Now, you may object that God's anger is not mentioned in verse 1 of chapter 21. The word isn't there. But you observe the word again in verse 1 of chapter 24. And again implies a before or as once before. Thus, the subsequent anger of God in chapter 24 parallels symmetrically God's response to Saul's treachery in chapter 21 and permits us to see the three-year famine as an expression of God's displeasure, even as the three-day plague is an expression of God's displeasure. Our author intends a symmetry of meaning and divine attributes at the beginning of chapter 21 and at the end of chapter 24. Let's mark this down as a significant clue, a large clue, Structural symmetry means theological symmetry. Now let's examine chapter 24 for structuring patterns. How would you break up the chapter, structurally speaking? If you begin with verse 1, What do you pick up as you scan down the verses of this chapter that duplicates what you find in verse 1? Verse 1 is the beginning of of counting. It's the beginning of counting, okay. And what's that? 
Verse 9 is a conclusion. I'm looking for terms that are precisely duplicated. Ben has given us the parameters correctly, but for the wrong reason. What do you see in verse 1 and in verse 9 that is exactly duplicated? Who is he numbering, Ben? Israel. And? Judah. And what do you find in verse 9? Israel and Judah. Israel and Judah. Verse 1, Israel and Judah, the object of the numbering. Verse 9, Israel and Judah, the object of the numbering. At the conclusion, as Ben pointed out, at the conclusion of the numbering, you're on the right track, Ben, you just needed to pick up the exact inclusio feature. All right, so we have an inclusio that brackets verses 1 and 9 and separates this section as a narrative unit, a subunit of the entire narrative in chapter 24, but it defines itself as a narrative unit. All right, now, the next narrative unit, beginning with verse 10. How far would you carry the second narrative subunit? Very good. And why, Ben? Well, it says, uh, I have sinned. Yes, I have sinned in both verses, right, Ben? Very good. You got an A-plus for that one. All right. Notice the duplication of I have sinned in verse 10 and 17, which frames that section as a narrative subunit. It begins and ends with an inclusio. The very same way it begins is the way it ends. Which leaves verse 18 through 25. Now what do you know? notice there, which is the framing device? Built an altar, correct? Built an altar to the Lord, but there's one more word that I want. It's exactly duplicated. Terry, who built the altar? David built the altar. Say, David, altar to the Lord. All right? Those are duplicated phrases in 18 and 25. So we notice what we have here. Remember, now, the liberal says that this chapter is nonsense. It does not fit into the story. And yet here we have a threefold inclusio structuring this story. Each unit here, carefully framed and bracketed by duplicate symmetrical vocabulary. That's not the work of a confused mind. And it's not the work of a later redactor or editor either. It's the work of a creative literary genius. He did it intentionally. He planned it. He thought it through. Yes, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, but he planned it out. All right, so once again, we see this symmetrical paradigm here, particularly in the inclusio features of this 24th chapter. Three narrative subunits framed by inclusios featuring the number of the people, verses 1 to 9, David's confession of sin, verses 10 to 17, 
David's worship through sacrifice at the threshing floor of Arauna, verses 18 to 25. It's pronounced Arauna, like like it was R-A-W instead of R-A-U, Arauna. This threefold drama moves from God's anger to God's placation via confession of sin and propitiatory sacrifice. Look what our narrator is doing. He is closing his account of David with the king in Jerusalem, worshiping the Lord God via the avenue of substitutionary sacrifice and peace offerings. At his end, David at worship, bearing atoning sacrifices, sacrifices betokening God's merciful grace and reconciling peace. Our author intentionally closes his volume with this portrait of David. A lovely portrait of the protological David offering himself to his Lord and God in worship through substitutes, through substitutes for his justly deserved guilt and sin. This portrait of David at the end of chapter 24 is the beautiful portrait of David that you gather from the Psalms that he wrote. The correspondence in those two portraits is symmetrical. It is parallel, though the one comes from song and this comes from narrative. But David at worship, and here at worship through the mediation of propitiatory sacrifice. Now, I want you to note other symmetrical duplications or symmetries of duplication in this chapter. And I want you to note them because I want to underscore our author's goal of embedding embedding narrative symmetries within this story. That is another clue to his intention, even here in enigmatic chapter 24. Notice in verse 2, he sets out to register the people. In verse 9, you find that same phrase, he has registered the people. In verse 11, David arises in the morning. In verse 15, David is still in in the morning of the same day. In verse 21, notice the phrase, the plague is held back. That phrase is duplicated symmetrically in verse 25, plague held back. Verse 21, the address, Lord the King. Verse 22, the address duplicated, Lord the King. And finally, verse 23, Lord God. And verse 24, Lord God. There are a number of other symmetrical duplications in 
this 24th chapter. So that the pattern of duplication within the narrative is a clue that narrative duplication is part of our author's literary and theological motivation. Notice what we're doing. We are deriving his intent, his theological intent. We are deriving his motivation from the structure of his narrative. We are reading his mind. We are reading the theology of his mind on the basis of how he structures his narrative. The clue to the meaning of what's going on here, the clue to the answers of the wise is given to us in the structure. Symmetry of duplication. All right, so duplication inside chapter 24 provides a plausible clue to duplication between chapter 24 and something outside itself. We've looked inside chapter 24, and we've seen symmetries. Does that mean that chapter 24 has symmetrical alignment with something outside of itself? Mmm. Mmm. That's worth thinking about. This clue, namely, that there may be symmetries outside of chapter 24, is initially confirmed in the duplicate symmetry of chapter 24 and chapter 21, which we've already reviewed. So there is at least one confirmation of the fact that he is matching up his symmetry of 24 with something outside of the chapter itself, namely chapter 21. But I believe there is more. I believe there is much more. External symmetry which sheds additional light on our author's literary and theological purpose in recording chapter 24 for our instruction and edification. But before we turn our attention in that potentially enigma-solving direction, I keep you in suspense a little bit longer. Let's look at verse 9. The ninth verse tells us what this registration or numbering or enrollment or census was all about. Notice the phrase, valiant men who drew the sword. Some light begins to fall on the puzzle, which is 2 Samuel 24. This chapter is about registering men for military combat, counting bodies that can handle a sword in battle. 2 Samuel 24 is about David adding up, adding up the potential soldiers in his country. It's as if David said to himself, like a typical bureaucrat, let's count something. Let's take a national census of the number of men of military age who can handle a sword in the event of war. Now, I don't 
want you to jump to the conclusion that I'm going to apply this to your 2010 U.S. Census form. (laughs) I am not saying anything about that matter. Send your census form in. David's census has nothing to do with the U.S. Federal Census Bureau. Nothing whatsoever, and you can quote me from the rooftops. Nor do I want you to jump to the conclusion that I'm some type of radical left-wing pacifist who objects to the U.S. military or to the registration for the draft. National defense is a moral obligation, and I am heartily in favor of it, as any red-blooded American man or woman patriot should be. So don't think that you can make applications of what I am saying for your particular agendas. What we realize is that David, ordering a census was not in itself sinful, as Moses proves. A census per se, a census in and of itself was not wrong. Or else Moses was wrong, even when God commanded it. Nor was it sinful to have valiant men who could draw the sword in battle. We have already had two lists Of such valiant men, more than 30 of them, in chapter 21, verses 15 to 22, and chapter 23, verses 8 to 39, men valiant with the sword is not wrong, per se. Or David was wrong to go out with a sword in his hand. No, the problem with David's numbering scheme was that he seemed to be forgetting his 30-odd mighty men and his army under Joab and those commanders, forgetting all that in order to put his confidence in 800,000 Israelites and 500,000 men of Judah. David has just sung a psalm about the mighty arm of the Lord in chapter 22. The mighty arm of the Lord who comes like a mighty warrior to enable David to overcome all his enemies. And what's he doing here? Two chapters later. Trusting in the arm of the Lord? No, he's not. David here is trusting in the arm of flesh. He is doing precisely what all the other pagan kings of the nations around Israel did in massing his strength in military numbers and acting as if it is by human might and human power and not by God's spirit that his kingdom is secure. Once again, we find David un. Daviding himself, undaviding himself in one of our narrator's narratives of his career. Here at the end of his story of David, our narrator shows his central character 
acting like Pharaoh in Egypt, Hadadezer of Zobah, the king of Syria, Moab, Amalek, Ammon, acting even like the king of the Philistines. David is behaving as if his heart is controlled by the very same thing that controls the heart of the pagan kings of the nations round about him. Power. Human power. Numbers. Human registers. Man. Man-centered man and his bureaucratic schemes. David is forgetting the Lord. David is forgetting his rock. David is forgetting his Savior. Where are all those attributes which he extolled in chapter 22, here in chapter 24? They are not to be seen. Now we're beginning to smell the rat. That's what's wrong here. David has begun to think that human military strength is the key to the preservation of his crown and his dominion, and that is pride. That is presumptuous pride. That is unbelief. That is sin. I have sinned. And now we know what sin is crouching at the door of David's heart. It is pride, vaunted pride. Vaunted pride in a numbers game. And it is sin. It is sin in Davidic Israel and Judah. So one enigma is solved. David's sin is exalting himself and humiliating the Lord. The very opposite of the directional vectors, we, which are the theological keys to the life of David. The theological keys are exalting the Lord and humbling David. David is doing the very opposite here. We now realize one profound reason our narrator has included chapter 24 in his two-volume work, the paradigm of abasing the proud and exalting the humble, which is a theological motif from Hannah's song in 1 Samuel 2 to David's song in 2 Samuel 22. That paradigm is reversed in 2 Samuel 24, verses 1 to 9. David undavids himself and boasts in the arm of the flesh, not in the strength of the Lord. That's what's wrong with David's heart. But now I want to use the principle of narrative ripples. The principle of narrative ripples, which I've used throughout this series to further elucidate the enigmatic whys of chapter 24. I want to apply that ripple effect here in 24 and return to that suggestion 
Are there symmetries outside of 24 with something beyond chapter 21? Are ripples coming to their climax here in 2 Samuel 24? Now, I suggested earlier that our inspired narrator has used duplication as a literary and structuring device within chapters 21 to 24. Now I want to further suggest that our inspired narrator is using duplication as a literary and theological device outside of chapters 21 to 24. Let me begin with a parallel between 21 and 24. God's parallel judgment ties these two narratives together symmetrically. But what is it that moved God to anger in chapter 21? What was it? What was it, Kay? Do you remember? Chapter 21. What moved God to anger to send that famine? Saul had killed the people he should not have killed. Saul had killed the the Gibeonites, correct? And what what was wrong with that? Not just the fact he killed them, but what was wrong with that, Pat? Very good. He had violated a covenant. He had broken a covenant with the Gabeonites, correct? Saul violated a covenant made with the Gabeonites. The narrative ripple of 2 Samuel 21 flows back to Saul and the covenant with the Gabeonites. Notice the narrative ripple of 21 flows back to Saul and the covenant the Gabeonites. What about 2 Samuel 24? Is there a narrative ripple in this chapter which flows back into the story of David? Is there a narrative ripple here that flows back? Like Saul's flows back to the violation of the covenant. Is there a narrative ripple here with David that flows back to David's earlier narrative. The clue is in the word that I've repeated twice already. Pat, what was the word you focused on? I asked you what had Saul done and what was the word? Covenant. Covenant. Is there a clue there for you? No. Go back in David's story. Chapter seven. Chapter seven, right, Pete? What's in chapter seven, Pete? The covenant that God made with him. Covenant that God makes with David in Second Samuel seven. Notice. <clears throat> If it is a covenant that is at stake with Saul in chapter 21, by symmetry, is it also a covenant 
which is at issue with David in chapter 24. Let's see what we find. What do we find in that narrative of 2 Samuel 7? In verse 26 of 2 Samuel 7, who is to establish the house of David? 800,000 Israelites, 500,000 Judahites. Who is to establish the house of David in 2 Samuel 7:26 when God makes his covenant with him? Notice, the Lord of hosts, God over Israel, is to establish the house of David. And who is establishing the house of David in chapter 24? The king in Jerusalem and men valiant with the sword. I am suggesting a symmetrical paradigm in which our narrator features the violation of a covenant. Features the violation of a covenant in parallel narratives. And he does so with ripples which reach back into the history of Saul, chapter 21, Ripples which reach back into the history of David, chapter 24. Covenant violation with Saul. Covenant violation with David. Rippling narrative symmetry. That's why he assumes that his readers understand what's at stake here and what's underneath it. I've already recorded the story of David covenant with God. And now look what he's done. At the end of my story, I'm showing you a portrait of him rejecting that covenant and trying to build his own house by his own might and strength. Why do I have to repeat the symmetry? Why don't I have to tell you or map it out for you? It's right there in front of your face. Saul breaks a covenant and I'm angry. David does something and I'm angry. Look for the same covenant theme. Go back to 2 Samuel 7. All right, now, I'm going to buttress that case after you get some oxygen. But I'm not going to leave it there just at the formal representation or formal uh, pointing to the covenant motif. I'm going to go further in order to support or strengthen the case for the fact that 2 Samuel 7 is what is at issue here in 2 Samuel 24. So take your break, and uh, we'll continue after the break. Keeping again, uh, there was a question about how many more sessions we will have for the life of David, uh, we need to go on to round off the story to uh, 1 Kings chapter 1 and 2. But you'll notice that there are 53 verses in 1 Kings 1 and 46 verses in 1 Kings 2. And though you are stellar uh, students uh, attending to uh, these uh, presentations I'm afraid that uh, almost 100 verses in one night would uh, bury you further than you may feel you're buried sometimes when you walk out of here. But uh, uh, so that that leads me to suggest that I think we will do two more sessions 
uh, one on each of those chapters, 1 Kings 1 next week and the week after that, 1 Kings 2. And that will allow us uh, some leisure to uh, treat uh, thoroughly uh, the content of those uh, more than or those those more than 40 verse chapters, uh, more than 50 verses in uh, the case of the first chapter. <clears throat> yes, Pete? Could you talk about the overall inclusio, maybe you're going to do this, about how the people in the beginning chose Saul for the reason that they wanted to be like the nations around them and not trust in the Lord? Very good. And then this... Yeah. Yes, there, there is a parallel symmetry in that David is almost becoming like the people of Israel themselves, in wanting a king like the other nations have. Again, there wasn't anything wrong with a king per se, as Moses' constitution of the king in Deuteronomy 17 indicates, but it was why they wanted a king. Here we're back to this issue of motivation. It's not that the king himself is wrong. But they wanted to keep up with the Joneses. They want to be just like everybody else around them. The Ammonites have got kings. The Philistines got kings. The Egyptians got kings. We want a king too. Sounds like a welfare state. You know, we just want to keep up with everything. All right. So uh, David, David is undavidating himself again, as I've noticed. In other words, he's falling back into a pattern of boasting in his own strength and falling into that uh, uh, attitude that, well, I'm the boss. Whoops, there goes my microphone. I'm, I'm the boss, I'm the king, and, uh, you know, I can do whatever I want. So he's sticking out his chest here in chapter 24, even as Israel was more or less sticking out their chest against the Lord in uh, second, in First Samuel chapter 7 uh, and, and following. So, yes, that's a good observation. On Pete's part, um, I do want to comment on Deuteronomy 17 a little bit later uh, uh, here this evening. Also, the contrast between Saul and David. Yes, yes, which we will see in the end of this chapter is starkly different. All right, now, um, I need to strengthen my case for narrative parallel between 2 Samuel 24 and 2 Samuel 7. Let me begin by pointing out further duplication and symmetry, not just the idea of a covenant motif, which I've already uh, demonstrated. I want you to notice some symmetry of exact language. In verse 11 of chapter 24, you might put your finger in 2 Samuel 7 for a moment. In verse 11 of chapter 24, you read, The word of the Lord came to. The word of the Lord came to. Now, if you look at verse 4 of 2 Samuel 7, you read the phrase, The word of the Lord came to. Precise Hebrew parallel. Going back to verse, going back to chapter 24, notice verse 12. You read in verse 12 of chapter 24, Go and say to David, thus says the Lord. Go and say to David, thus says the Lord. Now, flip back to 2 Samuel 7, verse 5. Go and say to David, thus says the Lord. Parallel 
Hebrew expression. It would appear that our narrator is reflecting a narrative mirror of David in chapter 24 back to the David reflected in chapter 7. And that mirror is reflecting a David who has forgotten God's covenant, who has disregarded the word of the Lord, a David who is determined even when counseled otherwise by Joab and his commanders, a David who is determined to build his own house through sheer force of numbers. The obverse of 2 Samuel 24 is 2 Samuel 7. That's the obverse. The reverse of a humble David in chapter 7 is the proud and vaunted David of chapter 24. David fulfilling here in 2 Samuel 24 what Moses prophesied a king would do. Deuteronomy 17, verse 20. The king's heart shall become lifted up above his people. David numbering his people with himself above them all, imperiously lording it over them as if they were lambs for the slaughter. Slaughter of a sword. Now, my mention of lambs in that previous statement was not a quantum leap. It was not. Please note the symmetry of vocabulary once again. The symmetry of vocabulary which our narrator records in chapter 24 and chapter 7. 2 Samuel 24, verse 17. These sheep. Second Samuel 7, verse 8. I took you from following the sheep. The Hebrew word for sheep is exactly the same. Narrative symmetry in the pastoral motif of sheep and a shepherd. The shepherd of Israel. Chapter 7, verse 7. Acting like a wolf. Acting like a wolf that devours the flock. Chapter 24, verse 17. David's actions in 2 Samuel 24 are the reverse. The reverse of his pastoral role, his God-appointed pastoral role in 2 Samuel 7. He's acting like a tin-horned dictator in chapter 24. He is not acting like a shepherd of the sheep. Our inspired narrator once again mirrors the David of chapter 24 in the David of chapter 7. Not only reversal of the covenant, but reversal of pastoral role. What then has David done in 2 Samuel 24 verses 1 to 9? He has reversed the declaration of God's gracious benediction. 2 Samuel 7, 9. I will make you a great name, says the Lord. I will make you a great name. A gracious benediction in 2 Samuel 7 that David ratifies with his own lips. In verse 23 of that same 7th chapter of 2 Samuel. God has made himself a great name. Now notice that. 
God's exalting himself mirrors David in himself and his exaltation. God exalting himself draws David into the mirror of God himself and his exaltation. That's 2 Samuel 7. But David's exalting himself mirrors Satan. Mirrors Satan. And in 1 Chronicles 21, 1, which is the parallel of 2 Samuel 24, it is Satan who is mirrored in this incident. The text says Satan moved David to number Israel. David's exalting himself mirrors Satan, God's adversary. And draws David towards the pit of Sheol and Belial. Ah, more Second Samuel 22 and 23 motifs. David exalting himself mirrors himself and his self-exaltation. That's Second Samuel 24. The narrative ripples. Of 2 Samuel 24 and 2 Samuel 7 are ripples of narrative reversal. They are ripples of narrative reversal. David is sinfully repudiating the covenant God made with him and pitting himself as sovereign over against the Lord God of Israel and Judah. And that reversal, that sad, pathetic Sinful reversal, that reversal must be reversed. David must become David at the end of the story, even as he has been David through the story. And God be praised, David does reverse the reversal, or we should say more theologically, God at work in David reverses the reversal. I have sinned. I have reversed covenant blessing with covenant cursing. I have sinned. And I need atonement. I need atonement, peace, and reconciliation. David confesses two times in verse 10 and in verse 17 of chapter 24 that he desperately needs the reversal of his own proud, arrogant, vaunted, covenant-rejecting reversal. Do not minimize that confession. He has been humbled and reversed from pride to humiliation. One final point of symmetry between chapter 7 and chapter 24. 2 Samuel 7 begins with David's desire to build a house for the Lord, a temple. You remember that? 2 Samuel opens with David at rest in his house, and he wants to build a house for the Lord, a temple which will feature an altar, an altar of sacrifice, an altar of sacrifice and atonement. 
Second Samuel 24 features David building an altar to the Lord. An altar which features sacrifice and atonement. And the location of that altar, it is the threshing floor of Araunah. The threshing floor of Araunah, which is the site of the Temple of Solomon and the altar that would be built there at the Solomonic Temple. First Chronicles 22, verse 1. Second Chronicles chapter 3. Verse 1, David sacrifices at the very spot where the temple of God's glory will be built by the Son of Peace. Mm. And there are those There are those that believe that that very spot was Moriah's Mount where Abraham sacrificed Isaac. The Akedah. The Akedah. And now, a final structural paradigm aligning 2 Samuel 21 and 24. In chapter 21, verse 1, we have David and Saul mentioned in that verse. David and Saul. Followed by God's just judgment. And a narrative in that 21st chapter, which includes atoning, expiation, and provision. Notice the paradigm. Saul and David, God's just judgment, atoning, expiating, provision, chapter 21. In chapter 22, verse 1, we have David and Saul mentioned again. But God's gracious provision emphasized in that triumphant psalm. In chapter 23, verse 1, we have David mentioned, but not Saul. And a repetition of God's gracious provision in the psalm David sings there at the beginning of chapter 23. Now here in chapter 24, verse 1. Once again, David and no Saul. With God's just judgment and atoning, expiating provision. The content of the narrative which moves from David and Saul together in 21 and 22 is reversed in 23 and 24. David standing alone in 24, but in some ways mirroring Saul in 21. We have observed this before. 
David begins to look on occasion as if he is the very alter ego of Saul who sought to kill him, particularly in the Uriah incident. Once again here, by the structural symmetry, our narrator places David over against Saul in 24, aligned with 21. David mirrors Saul in the parallel, chapter 24, and like Saul, the Lord is angry with him, visiting judgment upon the nation. But unlike Saul, David is graciously brought to cast himself, notice his language, upon the mercy of the Lord, to confess his sin and lay his hands and his sins upon a substitutionary victim, a victim who reverses his sin, reverses his judgment, reverses his self-exaltation, and thus, by God's grace, draws David near unto God once more at the end of 2 Samuel 24. And so in the end of our study of 2 Samuel 24, we are perhaps better able to answer the whys, the enigmatic puzzles which left us in such a quandary at the outset of this evening. Why is God angry with Israel? Because God is angry with David. David, through the temptation of the devil, has determined to exalt himself against the Lord, as Saul before him did, and number the arm of flesh for his political and military security. The Lord, by his permissive decree, allows David to heed the temptation of Satan and despise the covenant of his God which divine permission but inflames and incites David's ambition, his ambition and pride to ignore even wise human counsel and rush headlong towards destruction, both himself and the nation, 70,000 of the nation destroyed. The census is a threat to the life and health of the nation because David has provoked God to anger by his arrogant self-reliance. Why did Joab and the commanders object to the enrollment? Because they realized that the nation is secure. The nation is secure as she stands. Her military prowess, standing army of mighty men, and peace on her frontiers. Her frontiers from north in Dan to the south in Beersheba. All this is not broken, so don't fix it. Don't tamper with it. Don't send ripples through the nation which will arouse the wrath of God. Let it be, David. Let it be. And how does David know he has sinned? I believe his conscience has been stirred 
by the promises and narrative symmetry of God's covenant with him in 2 Samuel 7. He has remembered the words of the prophet. He has remembered the promises of God in that covenant disposition. He has remembered the covenant language and the covenant event of 2 Samuel 7. And now he beats his breast and says, I have sinned against the covenant God has made with me. That's the reason he confesses. The fact that God once again dispatches a prophet to David, as he did in 2 Samuel 7, though here it is Gad, there it was Nathan. The fact that God dispatches a prophet with, thus saith the Lord, brings to remembrance. It brings to remembrance God's former covenant mercies and promises. David confesses. I have sinned against God's covenant. That's how he knows it. And why does God relent? Because God has mirrored himself in David. David relents via confession and casting himself upon God's mercy. God, the all-merciful, has mercifully moved the heart of David to relent and cast himself on the divine mover's heart of mercy. You behold the repentance of David mirrored in the repentance of God and both anchored in the divine will, the divine determination, the divine decree. God decrees the repentance of David as he wills his own repentance in conjunction with David's act. I shall decree to relent, saith the Lord. I shall decree to relent as I join David to relenting, to my relenting. To turn from what I have determined to turn from, as his heart turns to my heart. I shall more intimately join David to myself, so that what I turn from, he will turn from in union with me. The mirror of divine decree and human act is intimately, inseparably united here. In 2 Samuel 24. And that is how you resolve the apparent tension of God inciting David. That is how you resolve the apparent marionette God view of the liberals. You draw David into the life of God. For repentance in union with God's life is God turning from his just wrath against you. He repents of the evil that he has decreed against unrepentant sinners as he draws you into his own repentance. Protological David reflects his union with the Lord God 
marvelously in this chapter. He abandons himself to the great mercies of the Lord, casting himself into the gracious hand of God his Lord. With sincere and contrite confession, he acknowledges that he has behaved in a manner directly opposite to the goodness of the Lord and deserves the just judgment of God, deserves that judgment for himself and not for the flock of God. He offers his own life for his people. And having offered his own life for his people, he brings burnt offerings and peace offerings as substitutes. Substitutes for himself and his people. Broken and contrite David, bearing his sin and condemnation, embraces a substitute for his guilt. Embraces a substitute for the guilt of his people and worships the Lord. The book of Second Samuel closes with the king. The king in Jerusalem. The penitent, sinful king in Jerusalem. Bearing the tokens of the forgiveness of sins. And worshiping, worshiping at the altar of the Lord. Do I need to mirror the eschatological David in the protological David for you? You do see the reflection of your Savior here, do you not? Bearing your guilt. Offering himself on behalf of his people, his sheep. Making himself an offering for sin. Worshiping his father with his life. With your life. Bringing you along with him. Bringing you along with him to the Jerusalem above, where you may worship the everlasting David at the altar stained with blood more precious than the blood of bulls and goats, where you may worship the lion out of the tribe of Judah, the root and offspring of David, where you may worship the David who excels the historical David as eternity exceeds time, as the eschaton exceeds chronon. Now, I'm willing to take any questions you may have on. Second Samuel 24, I have a few more things to say before we leave this evening about some of the events in First uh, and Second Kings. But at any rate, any questions about Second uh, Samuel 24? Any comments you'd like to make?
Yes, Mary? In 2 Samuel 7, verse 9, I have been with you wherever you have gone, and I have cut off all your enemies from before you. It seems like there is a correlation um, in, in Genesis 2, Adam, God says to Adam, I have provided you all the trees of the garden. And then Adam chooses to depend on man. In, in, with David, God says in 2 Samuel 7, uh, I have taken, gotten rid of all your enemies. And then David chooses to depend on man. So could it be that God is pointing out, or the writer is pointing out, that this David isn't the David talked about in the beginning of 2 Samuel 7, you know, who will build the house, and who will make the temple, and who will be the sacrifice. But it, this David is, besides being a, a type of Christ, he, but he actually is a son of Adam. And there is yet one to come, which is the rest of 2 Samuel Samuel 7. Um, I don't deny that any uh, son of Adam, the first, uh, whether he's David or anybody else, would uh, carry with him that inclination towards sin. Whether that distinction occurs in 2 Samuel 7, that is a division between a more, shall we say, eschatological Adam and a more uh, lapsarian Adam. Whether that's there or not, I'm not sure. I read the narrative uh, continuously, though I don't deny that the David that is addressed in 2 Samuel 7 is still a person that bears the remnant of original sin in his uh, in his own disposition. Could it be that the reason is put at the end of 2 Samuel, in 2 Samuel 24, it's put there to say that this David is still not the David that is to come? That, that is true, yeah, re- regardless of uh, whether I agree with you on 2 Samuel 7, but that is true in 24. Uh, David himself can only be a faint portrait of what the eschatological David is. That portrait commends us to him, but it, it, it ex- that portrait exceeds what is here in 24, because, of course, the eschatological David is not a sinner. He's a sin bearer, but he's not a sinner, as David the protological is. Thank you. Any other comments? Yes, Robert. Uh, first one, uh, at first blush, kind of bothers me here. It says um, that God himself incited David to commit the sin. And that's not playing fair, you know? <laughs> All right. It's the same kind of language that you have in the book of Exodus where it says God hardened Pharaoh's heart. <clears throat> Uh, this is uh, classic Calvinism. All right? We're going we're to interpret the scriptures according to Westminster standards and the Reformed confessions here. In other words, we're going to look at this kind of language in the light of God's permissive decree. That is what he allows, what he permits. And that's the reason I think that First Chronicles 21 verse 1 is very helpful in a complementary exegesis or interpretation of what's going on here. God permits Satan to incite David. And in that sense, God is inciting him by the permission of allowing David to be tempted by the adversary. 
So you put the two pictures together and you see very much what you see in the book of Job, in the opening chapters of the book of Job, God using Satan for his permissive purposes. So the decree of God is behind this, but it's a decree which permits this to happen so that the writer can use this strong language that God himself is inciting, but he's inciting by permitting, by allowing. He's not inciting by being the author of evil. It's the same way in the, in the language of Pharaoh's heart being hard. God's not the author of hardening Pharaoh's heart. heart. Pharaoh's heart is hard already. It's just that God isn't going to soften it up. He's going to allow it to continue to get harder and harder and harder. He's not going to add... Uh, he's not going to add any uh, softening agent, you know, uh, like some of you women add to your uh, recipes. You add something to soften things up. I mean, God's not going to add anything to the recipe of Pharaoh's heart. He's just going to let it go, and it's going to be rock hard. You know, you're not even going to be able to eat it. It's just going to be like uh, burned over calf's liver, shoe leather, whatever. Anyway, you get the picture. Right? So we, we, we come back to our reform framework of interpreting this type of language, which is God's permissive decree and his positive decree. This is not a positive, this is a positive permissive decree, okay? It's a positive decree, but it's permissive. He positively decrees to allow it. All right, anything else? All right, in closing now, let's take a look at King's... uh, We're going to look at the first two chapters of Kings as we round off the story of David, but I thought it would be helpful for us to talk a little bit about events in First and Second Kings and the dates of those events to give you a little bit of a a chronology of the uh, the flow of what's in front of us with the book as a whole, but even with certain events in the first two chapters. Uh, we begin with an event that's prior to this, and that is the accession of David or his coronation. Um, how old was David when he was crowned king? Does anyone remember? How many years was he king? 40. He was 40 years king. Very good. And when was he, where was he crowned king? In Hebron, very good. And how long was he king there, Ben? He was seven and a half years king in Hebron, and so he was 33 years king in Jerusalem. All right, now, um, do any of you remember the date that I gave you for that accession way back when? Or even in round numbers, the approximate date of David coming to the throne? It's really an easy date to remember. Yeah, it's about 1000 BC. It's actually more accurately 1010. All right, so he reigns for 40 years. All right, so when we come to the opening of 1 Kings, where we have the accession of Solomon and the death of David, what date do we have? How do I get the date of David's death and the accession of Solomon? What am I going to do? What mathematically am I going to do here, Terry? I'm going to subtract what? Forty years from that date, and what am I going to end up with? 970 B.C. Okay, so Solomon comes to the throne in 970. David dies in 970. He had a 40-year reign. All right? And how long does Solomon reign? He reigns 40 years, doesn't he? 
So, Terry, you're our math expert. What am I going to do here? I'm going to subtract another 40, and what do I get? Now I get 930. Remember, we're going backwards here. It's 930 B.C. for the death of Solomon. Okay, so we have the death of Solomon. And what happens when Solomon dies? Who succeeds him? Rehoboam, his son. Okay, and what happens there? The kingdom is divided, correct? And Rehoboam has the kingdom split from him by whom? Jeroboam the who? Jeroboam the first, because there is a Jeroboam the second later on in the 8th century B.C. Okay, so Jeroboam the first and Rehoboam split the kingdom. And what are the names of the kingdoms as they are split with the death of Saul, Solomon? Anyone? Israel. What direction is that? That's in the north. How many tribes? Ten tribes. What's the capital? Samaria is the capital. Very good. What's the other kingdom? Judah. Where is it? It's in the south. How many tribes? Two. What are their names? Judah and Benjamin. What's the capital? Jerusalem. Very good. Okay. So now the book of Kings is going to talk about the unfolding history of the northern and southern kingdoms, this split or division in the kingdom. All right. So the northern kingdom survives until what date? 722. Very good. 722 slash 21. All right. Now, what happens to... Israel in 722. Captivity by the Assyrians. Okay, it's the Assyrians who destroy the northern kingdom. They destroy Samaria. They carry the ten northern tribes into captivity. Who is the last king of the northern kingdom? Hoshea. Hoshea. It's actually spelled the same way Hosea is in Hebrew, but it's we give the English Hoshea to it to distinguish it from the prophet so there's no confusion. He's the last king who rules uh, the northern kingdom of Israel from 732 to 722 B.C. Okay, now who was the king of Assyria that destroyed Samaria and Israel and carried them away captive? No, Sennacherib is later. Sennacherib is about 701 B.C. He actually takes the throne in 705 B.C. as king of Assyria. And he is up against Hezekiah. You remember the story of the siege of Lachish and Jerusalem. All right, now this is a tricky one because the Bible in 2 Kings 18, verse 9, says Shalmaneser. This is Shalmaneser V. As you number the Assyrian monarchs, and Shalmaneser V reigns from 727 to 722. Now, you'll notice the date, 722. And then in that 2 Kings 18, verse 9 passage, you go down a couple of verses to verse 11, 
It says Shalmaneser laid siege to Samaria in the ninth verse. And then it says, and the king carried them away in verse 11. But it doesn't say that it was Shalmaneser. But you assume that because the antecedent of king in verse 11 is Shalmaneser, who's been mentioned in verse 9, that it's the same guy. Until you come to the Assyrian Chronicles. That is the Assyrian records of the destruction of the northern kingdom, which is recorded. And Sargon II claims to have captured Samaria and carried it away. Now, this is one of those conundrums that even archaeology hasn't solved yet, because there's suspicion that Sargon is bragging about claiming Shalmaneser's victory. Shalmaneser evidently dies in 722. Sargon is going to reign from 722 to 705. He's the predecessor to Sennacherib that Kay mentioned. And he brags in his archives that he conquered Samaria. But you see, the archaeologists and the students of Assyrian history are suspicious that this is braggadocio. He's just boasting upon the fact that he went in and took over Shalmaneser's conquest. So it... There's no error in the Bible because in that verse it says the king carried them away. It doesn't say what king. You assume it may be Shalmaneser, but it may have been Sargon. And this would be a case where if we got more archaeological investigation and we could actually prove from an unimpeachable source of the annals of Assyria or some other place that it was Sargon, then we could say, okay, then the Bible is simply saying that Shalmaneser started the siege, but Sargon concluded it. Even though he's not mentioned, he's just called the king in that subsequent verse. That's one of these little uh, challenges that uh, uh, archaeology uh, places before us, uh, and the text itself uh, doesn't solve. All right, not not so with the uh, pattern in the southern kingdom. Okay, how long does the southern kingdom of Judah last? To to five eighty seven eighty six. Very good. And what nation? is the destroyer of the southern kingdom. It is Babylon, correct. And who is the king that destroys Jerusalem? No. It is Nebuchadnezzar. Since you brought Cyrus up, what country is he from? He's not from Babylon. He's a Persian. He's an Iranian. (laughs) Okay. All right. Babylon and Nebuchadnezzar who reigns as king of Babylon from 605 to 562 B.C. All right. Who's the last king of Judah? Last king of Israel is Hoshea. Who's the last king of Judah? Zedekiah. Zedekiah, correct. Zedekiah. Very sad story. Zedekiah is captured and his sons are captured and his sons are killed or murdered right in front of him, executed in front of him, and then his eyes are put out. The last thing he sees, last thing he sees with his living eyes, the death of his sons. Nebuchadnezzar, uh, you know, the horror of uh, that uh, punishment. Yet Zedekiah, in some sense, had brought it on himself because he had rebelled against Babylon. All right, now, outside of Kings, First and Second Kings moves from the reign of Solomon to the destruction of Jerusalem at the end of Second Kings. But let's round off the story. Robert uh, brought up the name Cyrus. 
And Cyrus is the uh, king of what empire? Persian Empire, okay? Cyrus the Great. And what what does he, uh, as king of the Persian Empire, who does he knock off in the order of succession of empires? He knocks off the Babylonians. Babylonians knock off the Assyrians. Persians knock off the Babylonians. And what date? 539. 539 B.C. is the destruction of Babylon. Belshazzar's feast, Daniel chapter 5. You can date that to 539. Okay. And what does Cyrus do after he conquers the Babylonian Empire? He says to the Jews, you may go back. And so 538, 37, the Jews begin to return under the decree of Cyrus. And who are their leaders as they go back? No. Ezra and Nehemiah are actually a whole century later. Ezra 458, Nehemiah 445. Zerubbabel is one of them. And Shealtiel, but who's the other official, chief official? Jeshua or Joshua the high priest. So Zerubbabel, the governor, and Joshua or Jeshua the high priest are the two leaders of the initial return. Ezra and Nehemiah do return uh, later, but uh, this is the uh, leader, the first a returning group that lays the foundation to the temple and the book of Haggai. Uh, and those of you that have heard Benji's sermons on Haggai uh, or even read his articles in which he's published on Haggai. And incidentally, Benji is, uh, is, a, is a great expert on the book of Haggai. He's done a tremendous amount of work, which we've even published uh, in exegesis of Haggai. He's done some very fine, uh, has very, very fine insights into the structure of the Hebrew text and so on. But at any rate, that's the era that we're in here. It's the era of Haggai and Zechariah, those two prophets. All right, now there's a just a rough uh, outline of what's in front of us in terms of the decline of the Davidic house, the decline to destruction. So that in First and Second Kings, one of the motifs that binds the narrative together is the fidelity of the king of Judah to the covenant God made with David. It's another narrative thread that runs through first and second kings alike. Now, on your last page of the outline that I've given you, I've given you a very abbreviated chiastic outline of first and second kings. There is a structure to the books. It begins with the union and disunion or division of Solomon's kingdom, David and Solomon's kingdom, in the verse 14 verses of 1 Kings. It moves to a couple of chapters which list successive kings of Judah and Israel. And then we have a large section that deals with the Amrides. That is, that's the dynasty of Omri, king of Israel, whose most famous descendant was Ahaz. Ahaz, who married Jezebel. So the Amrides, as they're called, they're even referred to that, they're even referred by that category 
in the Assyrian Chronicles. Bit Umri, as it is in Akkadian, the house of Omri. Okay, so it's a dominant dynasty, lasts for almost a hundred years, and a, a coincidental with that uh, dynasty and its evil is the rise of the prophets, Elijah and Elisha particularly. All right, now we've got another theme. We have another theme in First and Second Kings, which is essential to understanding it. It is the conjunction of the prophets with the history of the kingdoms. And now you see you're getting a clue as to how you interpret the Old Testament prophets. You don't interpret the Old Testament prophets as talking about future millenniums. You interpret the Old Testament prophets in terms of the history that's swirling around them. And that's the reason you have to be able to attach those prophets to the history of First and Second Kings, at least those that are pre-exilic, that is before the exile, before 586, which includes most of the writing prophets, with the exception of Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. <clears throat> My point here is that as the Jews call First and Second Kings part of the former prophets, and Isaiah through Malachi, the latter prophets, the Jews are making a very interesting canonical point. They are saying that you cannot understand the latter prophets, that is, the speaking prophetic prophets, without understanding the history of the former prophets. You've got to keep the two of them together. Now, most lay people do not do well with the prophets. They simply read them for devotional inspiration. And one of the reasons lay people don't do well with the prophets is they don't do well with the history of First and Second Kings. That's the challenge before you if you're going to penetrate what the prophets are doing. Now, you don't have to do it in a seminary-style setting, but my, my comment here is to encourage you to think about, all right, now when Isaiah is prophesying, What's going on in the history of Israel or Judah that is in his crosshairs, prophetically speaking? Well, it's Sennacherib. It's Ahaz. It's Jerusalem under siege. It's the Assyrian incursion. It's international affairs. It's international politics. Isaiah knows international politics as much as he knows the inspired word of God. So you've got to know a little bit about Egyptian, Assyrian, and Babylonian history if you're going to understand what Isaiah is talking about. A little bit. But that's how the prophets become rich to you. If you understand the history that's behind them, the context to which they are speaking, and the context to which they are projecting, namely the eschatological prophet of God who is the Lord Jesus Christ. So the, the, the crucial point here is that Kings remains a kind of analytic boredom to the average lay reader until you begin to understand that that history is what is the context for the prophet's preaching. So here at the center of First and Second Kings, the preaching of Elijah and Elisha, that's your great clue that these two books are about not only history, but prophetic history. The history of the prophets, former and latter. Because many of the prophets are even named in First and Second Kings. The writing prophets are named in First and Second Kings. 
or the prophets themselves placed themselves in the reign of Hosea, in the reign of Uzziah, and uh, and so on, Jotham, etc., of uh, Jeroboam rather, and Uzziah of Jerusalem and Samaria. All right, now. <clears throat> The hinge point then of First and Second Kings is this prophetic drama, so that you find prophets, even unnamed prophets, in the earlier part A and B, and in the latter part B prime and A prime, you find prophets being sent from God to the kings, to the nation. So that on the other side of the center of this uh, chiasm for the outline of the book is another section of chapters in 2 Kings 13 to 16, which deals with the lists or the names of the successive kings of Israel and Judah. And finally, the book closes in parallel with how the book opens the disunion and destruction and exile of both the northern and southern kingdoms, 2 Kings 17, 25. All right, notice the paradigm. Notice the symmetry. Is there literary artistry here? Is there narrative artistry here? There is indeed. Once again, we see that the scriptures are not just boring historical chronicles. There is a literary artistry in the way they have been constructed. And here's a very simple artistic outline, chiastic outline of the artistry behind First and Second Kings. All right, we'll, we'll come back to First Kings chapter 1. We'll take a look at more of the artistry of the writer of First Kings. Is he the same author as First and Second Samuel? No, he's not. At least in my opinion, he is not. Even the author of the first two chapters of First and Second Kings is not the author of First and Second Samuel, in my opinion. I'm not dogmatic about that, but it is my opinion that we have a slightly different narrative style in First Kings 1 and 2, which is not exactly the same as the narrative or literary style of First and Second Samuel. Okay, that's a once-over lightly. <clears throat> if you have any questions about that, it'll help you organize the flow. <clears throat> you see the flow of the events. And you see that this line of history is moving in God's providence and sovereignty to a particular goal which goal, of course, is ultimately the coming of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. So it's redemptive history. It's redemptive. It's history unfolding to redemption. And redemption, even in the midst of that history, as it unfolds. We call it redemptive historical understanding of the Old Testament. Any questions or comments about uh, any of that? Okay, well, we're only going to be dealing with uh, about one year of this uh, next week, or in the first two chapters of First and Second Kings, uh, the story of uh, Solomon, David, and Adonijah in particular.